I'm so inspired by that announcement. I feel like I just start every sermon with, we're back. <laughs> you might get a little sick of that, though. But um, this morning, as we've gathered to sing and to share scripture and to kind of send our prayers up together, uh, my prayer is that I hope you feel loved and as family as gathered to worship. Um, this is one of my favorite Sundays of the year. Uh, because every Sunday the church gathers to worship, but on this Sunday we gather together, not just here at Harrisburg or as the Brethren in Christ or as Anabaptists, but we gather the world over. We're united with siblings from all around the world to celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And I think that's beautiful that every single church or most churches in the world will be focused this morning on Jesus entering into Jerusalem as king. And I love it because it means it goes across tradition, you know, but it also means it goes across time, which, which to me unites us with not only, you know, the Christians who are alive today, but all the saints who've come before, who've celebrated Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And for those of us who are waiting until Jesus returns and for the saints to come, we kind of invite them and join in the celebration as well. So, so as we focus on Jesus entering as king, we focus on this idea that our God, who we worship, is the God they worship, is the God we're all worshiping, is the God who will be worshiped. Amen. And what I also love is that a lot of times we think about the ancients who kind of formulate a lot of these traditions that we hold on to. We think of them as this like stiff people. But I love that when they looked at Lent, which is this somber season of reflection, they give that 40 days. You know, they say 40 days in the wilderness, 40 days to think about, you know, um, um, self-denial and prayer and repentance and reconciliation and focusing on Jesus in the wilderness, but also the march to Jerusalem. But then when they get to Resurrection Sunday and Easter, they said this is a celebration. So even though Lent is 40 days, the, the, the immediate um, uh, season that comes after Lent is called Eastertide, right? And Eastertide is actually from Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, to Pentecost Sunday, and they give that 50 days, right? So don't call the old people stiff. They wanted to celebrate for 10 more days, right? They're like, somberness, 40 days, but 50 days of celebration that Christ is risen. But this morning, as we kind of talk about what does it mean that Jesus comes as king, we are still in the season of Lent. And in this season, of Lent, we've asked ourselves to, to remember that in this season, God holds on to us as we hold on to God. Yes, we focus on Jesus in the wilderness, but we also focus on his march towards Calvary. Again, time and time again, the Gospels, it says he set his face towards Jerusalem. And we're going to try to unpack that a little bit and see what does it mean that he set his face towards Jerusalem. Because you see, the courage of our Jesus and our King doesn't just happen on Calvary's tree. It happens that entire week that we now call Holy Week. And as we, if you've been around here for a while, you know that we've been going through Palm Sunday just using the Gospels, right? So this is my, my fourth year preaching Palm Sunday as senior pastor. And if you were tracking along, which I know you all are keeping notes at home, you know that we did Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So today we're on John, right? And if you want to plan for next year, guess where we'll be in Matthew, right? We're just going to keep recycling through the Gospels. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 12. Um, we're going to be reading verses 12 to 19 in John 12 as we look at Jesus' triumphal entry when he comes as king. John 12, starting at verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. 
Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Let's pray together. Our Father, our God, we thank you this much, this, this morning. We thank you this much, too, that we get a chance to celebrate Jesus as our King. Father God, we thank you that he is indeed the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior of the world. But we thank you that he is the one that was promised to redeem us, to reconcile us to you, to defeat sin and death forever, to make it possible for we, the lost children, to come home. And Father God, we thank you that as our Deliverer, you not only delivered us on Calvary, but you still meet us where we are. So Lord, we know that wherever we fall short, you, our King, can pick us up. We know that wherever we're broken, you, our king, can make us whole. We know that wherever we fail to do the good that you've called us to do, that you, our king, can not only use the power of the Holy Spirit to inform us of this, but to transform us and set us on that right path. So this morning we gather to not only remember Jesus entering and coming as king, but to hold on to the truth that Jesus is king and to celebrate that Jesus, our king, will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords forever and ever. Amen and amen. So in this passage, William Barclay, reflecting on the life of Jesus, looks at the whole life of Jesus and says, listen, this is the last stage in the journey. It's the last act of the drama. In our modern parlance, it'll be like, this is the last scene in the movie, right? If you know everything about Jesus, this is the part I want you to focus on. But as we think about Jesus entering into Jerusalem, I think there's some things we need to kind of share a little bit and unpack a little bit to see the significance and to also help us hold on to the courage of Jesus coming even into Jerusalem. Because you see, in Jesus' day, Jerusalem was, as it is today, the political and spiritual center. Jerusalem was the city of David, the great city of Israel. It was the capital city, but it was also in the time of Jesus, the Roman seat. Now, what's interesting about the Roman Empire is we, we, we tend to think of the Roman Empire as like you have the emperor, you have the senate, and they ruled over everything, right? It's better to maybe understand the Roman Empire as, as, as a, a series of independent states or provinces, right, who were all under Rome. So they were independent as long as they were dependent on Rome, right? So it's almost better to think of Rome as like the absent father, right? Who like, you can do whatever you want as long as you stay in line. But if you stay out of line, you will see that absent father being very present. And because Rome was Rome and it wasn't a kingdom of God, that father being present didn't look like our father who loved us. It might look at you being killed, right? So yes, you were independent as long as you were dependent on Rome. So that's what Jerusalem was. So that's why you see in the scriptures, You'll see um, the, 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 the scribes and Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, but then you'll also see the, the governor of Rome, and then you'll see Herod called king. There was all these people who were jockeying for position, but the, the key of the story was, are you dependent on Rome? Is Caesar your lord? Is Rome the one you bow down to? Because if you can say yes and follow all the rules, then you can do whatever you want, right? It's a different kind of freedom. As long as you do everything they say, you're free. That was Rome. But the other part about Jerusalem is not only is this, this the political power, not only was it this province and regional power independent, but also dependent on Rome, but it was also the spiritual center still of God's people. This is where the temple was. I talked about the Sanhedrin. This was a gathering of, of, of Jewish scholars and rabbis who were chosen, and they met every single day. They would take off on the Sabbath, then they would meet again every single day to decide if the people were living and how the people were to live. So this was another symbol of power. 
But Jerusalem itself was also a festival center, which means that on the major festivals, Jews and God's people would come from all over the world. And in our passage, we learn that Jesus actually shows up before one of these festivals, and this festival is called Passover. Now, what's fascinating to me is that when the Jews come to Jerusalem, they come from Africa. They come from parts of the Middle East. They even come from Asia. So that's why I love when people come to our church and they find out about our church and be like, wow, you guys are really into this diversity thing. It's new. I'm like, yeah, it's so new, right? It starts in Genesis and ends in Revelation, and it's all throughout the Bible, too. So it's very new to you, but it's not new to our God. Because, you see, the people of God have always been a multicultural people. God's kingdom has always been a multicultural kingdom. God's people has always been whoever believes. And even in our passage today, you'll see the crowd that's joining. There's nothing that says the crowd is fully Jewish. But there's many that says when he saw or when they saw Lazarus alive, they followed him. And there's nothing that says this crowd that's at, at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house is only Jewish, but there's plenty that says that many people, because they heard what he had performed, the sign, they went out to meet him. God's kingdom has always been a multicultural kingdom. And if we don't understand that, and if we're not working for that, I would venture to say we've missed the whole point of God's kingdom. Amen. So that's what's happening here in Jerusalem. God's people have gathered from all over the world. Now, Josephus, who's a Roman historian, puts it like this, right? I'm sorry for all my vegetarians and vegans. I would never do such a thing. I would eat it, but I would never kill them, right? But this is what Josephus said happened. In Rome during Passover, in Jerusalem, there were about 250,000 lambs that were killed. I bet it was delicious, but I would never kill them. But 250,000. Now, Jewish law from the, the Mosaic law and the Sanhedrin said that each lamb should be able to feed 10 to 20 people. So if you put that math together of 250,000 that are killed and, and it fed 10 to 20 people, that means that estimated on Passover, during this festival in Jerusalem, there were at least 2 million Jews in town. If you're going to announce that you are king there's probably not a better time than Passover. Two million Jews from Africa, from parts of Asia, from the Middle East, all gathered in Jerusalem. Why is this significant? This is significant because in the time of Jesus, the normal population for Jerusalem was 25,000. That's half of Harrisburg's population. And that means on Passover, that 25,000 went up 80 times to two million people. Again, if you're going to announce yourself as king, there's probably not a better time than what? Passover. How significant is that number to this day? I think the last um, census I saw was Jerusalem has about 930,000 people, which means the 2 million that come in on Passover is double even what Jerusalem is today. Again, if you are going to announce yourself as king, there's probably not a better time than Passover. 2 million Jews have gathered, but what did they gather for? They gathered, and to this day, Jewish people all across the world still, they don't all go to Jerusalem, right? They built new temples, but they still gather to remember God's liberation from Egypt. In fact, the name Passover comes from literally the, the hyssop and the lamb's blood being on the doorpost and the angel of death, what? Passing over your house. But I think what I love about Passover was it wasn't just a celebration of God's deliverance. It wasn't just a holiday. Yes, they got time off like we get time off for, for Christmas. Maybe not Easter, some of you, right? But it wasn't just about the rituals. It wasn't even just about the meal, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit. 
But what I love and what challenges me is that when they gathered to remember God's liberation from Egypt, they held on to two things. They listened to God saying, I want you to remember what I've done. I want you to remember who I am. I want you to remember how I've saved you. And then this is a place where you see this time and time again in the scriptures, especially in the Psalms, right? Each generation shall praise your works to the next, right? God has this expectation that all of us who know him are to pass on what we know about God to the next generation. And this is the one of the ways they do it. So not only did they remember who God was, what God did, how God saved them, but they also gathered to retell the story of God's salvation. And that challenges me. Because at Christmas, God seems to think it's more important that I teach my kids about why Jesus came than which LOL doll to buy. Now, Kennedy may not like that very much, but that's what God says. And we submit to God mostly, you know, Kennedy, we got to work on, right? But it means that all of us, not just as parents, but people with, with people who are invested in us or people we're pouring in, that God expects us to tell the story, to not just enjoy the holiday. That it's not just about what we give and the presents we give. So like even in this resurrection and Easter coming up, it's not about what candy you buy. It's not about what bunny and the bunny showing up on time. It's about what is the significance of Easter? How are you living to pass that on? Are you passing it on to your bunny baskets? Are you passing on and reminding or telling the story that the God of the universe who died is alive and he was resurrected on the third day? When they gathered for Passover, they gathered to remember who God was, what God did, how God saved them, and they gathered to teach the story of God. And one of the ways they did it was in, in the rituals of even the plate. So on the plate, they would have bitter herbs, right? Which, again, I, I feel like vegans are just taking a beating this morning. You should start eating meat. You'll feel better, right? But they would eat these bitter herbs not because they were good, but to remind themselves of the bitterness of slavery that their ancestors suffered. And I think that's such a contrast to us in America today, right? Because what do we say? Slavery was so long ago. Well, I wasn't there. I, I didn't enslave you, right? But yet for thousands of years on Passover, the Jews eat that bitter herbs, right? To remind themselves that slavery wasn't so long ago. And that Egypt enslaved, but God redeemed. And also on that Passover plate, what was a, 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 a fruit plate? This is my favorite sermon. I feel like me and the vegans are going to have a conversation after this. But they would also take a fruit and nuts and they would mash it together and make this nasty paste. Nasty, disgusting. But this paste was brownish in color. And it was to remind them of the huts that they lived in when they were in slavery. So I find it fascinating. In our country, slavery was what? maybe 400 years ago, 1865, emancipation, wasn't that long ago. But you're talking about Jewish people who for thousands of years, their God has wanted them to remember that, yes, you were enslaved, but I redeemed you. That it wasn't that long ago, so don't, don't disassociate yourself from it, but remind yourself of where you were and where I've taken you. Also on that plate, though, was the bone of the lamb, to remind them that the holy lamb or the lamb that was set apart, the lamb that was slain, is the blood that allowed them to be Passover. And is the blood that allowed them to be saved. But lastly, and I find this maybe the most interesting, in every Seder, there's four cups. 
And these four cups actually are point exactly to Exodus 6 and 7. This is the passage when God says, I will bring you out of the burden of slavery. I will bring you out of the burden of Egypt. I will deliver you from the bondage of slavery. I will redeem you with my outstretched arms. Hold on to that picture, right? I will redeem you with my outstretched arms. And I will take you as my people. So each of the cups that they have represents that. The first cup I will bring you or out of the burden of slavery is a cup of sanctification, where God is saying, I have set you apart. You see yourself as slaves. You see yourself as the least of these, but I have chosen you. I have set you apart to be my holy people. And again, this is not just an ethnic people. Because remember at the end of Exodus 12, it wasn't just the Jews that left Egypt. It was everyone who saw the miracle and believed. They became Israel. They became the people of God. The second cup they would take was a cup of deliverance, where God is saying, I'm your deliverer. I'm going to go down into Egypt. I'm going to pick you up from the bonds of slavery. I'm going to set you free. The third cup that they would drink was the cup of redemption. And I said, hold on to the picture because what they had was a symbol that one day God will save them with his outstretched arms. And they can use their imagination and be like, yeah, figuratively, he reached down into Egypt and picked us out. We don't have to be as creative with our imagination. Because when we look at Calvary's tree, we're reminded when Jesus dies on Calvary's tree, that is our God outstretching his arms to redeem us. But the last cup. It's the cup I love the most because that is the cup of Hallel, which you get hallelujah, right? It's the cup of praise. And what's interesting is that some theologians believe that when Jesus is dying on the cross, remember last year the Eureka was when Jesus says, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? He's not saying God has turned his back on me. He's not even saying God isn't here. Right? Because if the Psalms like we've been studying are songs, then they're songs that have lyrics. And lyrics are more than one line usually. So if you read all of Psalm 22, it doesn't take much for you to imagine that Jesus is singing this entire psalm. And how does that psalm end? But God's saying, I have done this so that all the peoples of the world can come to me. So even when Jesus says, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? He's reminding everyone who will hear don't pick one line of the movie, of the book, of the story. Read the whole song. And the whole song is, I'm doing this so that everyone can come home again. This year's Eureka is this fourth cup of blessing. So there's theologians who believe that Jesus takes that fourth cup when he's actually on the cross. So when they take the sour wine and mingle it, and then they put it on the sponge and put it in his mouth, and he sucks maybe a little bit of it, and he says, it is finished. Our traditional rendering be like, yes, the job was done. Yes, it was accomplished. Yes, he died. But if that is indeed the fourth cup that Jesus takes during Holy Week, if that is indeed the cup of praise, then Jesus isn't just saying it is finished, my job is done, but Jesus is saying, I need you to remember to praise God in this. I need you to remember that not only is it finished, but now we can praise. That not only is Lent over, but Easter is coming. Not only has the work been done, but God has been satisfied. I've done the work. God is satisfied. Your job is to praise. And that's what the four cups represent. 
And now we get out of Passover and come to Jerusalem. And where we land is Bethany, the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And what's fascinating is these were friends of Jesus who supported him throughout his ministry. What's even more fascinating is not what happened in John 12, but what happens at the end of John 11. When we speak about the courage of Jesus, it doesn't just happen on Calvary Street. At the end of John 11, the chief priests and Pharisees have gathered together. They've been taking account of everything Jesus is doing. They've been seeing how he raised Lazarus from the dead and the crowds are following him along. And they actually set a bounty on the head of Jesus. So when Jesus enters into Bethany a week before Passover, he's actually not just in hiding, but in hiding because there was a bounty on his head. And the bounty wasn't just see him and kill him. It's if you hear anything about him, bring him to us. So it's the courage of Jesus to not only show up in Jerusalem, to not only show up when there's millions of Jews in Jerusalem, but to show up and say, no, 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 to show up and say, I am king, while they're trying to kill him. And he didn't sneak into town, did he? But we'll get to that in a second. As he's sitting at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, as he's enjoying company with Lazarus, the man who in John 11, he raises from the dead. There's a crowd that's gathering around. And what do they see? but Mary taking a big old flask out. You know, there's a story of the alabaster jar. We have this little picture jar. That's not the flask she has. In fact, what she pours out and the, the oil she puts out, it's so expensive, Judas tries to chastise her. And Judas is like, what are you doing? Why are you wasting this oil? We can literally sell this for what the average person makes a year. Like, what are you doing? And Jesus sits there and he lets Mary anoint him. And what I picture, pardon to our sisters and brothers who believe baptism is a sprinkle. You know, that's you. God bless you. We as brethren in Christ, we take it seriously. We immerse you, right? Like full immersion three times. Father, Son, Spirit. Don't you want to be baptized now? But when we do that, right, what I picture is as Mary is anointing Jesus, it's not just a sprinkle. It's an overflowing because this is her praise. This is her worship. But more important than that, this is her king. And I don't love how we as Christians, mostly we as Christian men for thousands of years, have made we as men the center of the gospel and the center of faith. And I think God challenges that because what's the most important thing that happened in the Old Testament? It was God redeeming them out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage. And who does God principally use to make that happen? It's women. It's Shipra and Pua, the Hebrew midwives that let the babies live. It's Moses' sister Miriam and his mother who hid him in the bushes. It's the Pharaoh's daughter who takes him in and raises him as her own, gives him all the privilege of, of Egypt, but also lets his mom be his nanny to teach him his faith. It's the women that make Moses even possible to be. And when you get to the resurrection, which we believe is the most important thing that happens in the New Testament, who is the voice to teach about the resurrection? It's women again. But the one I missed till this week was before Jesus goes into Jerusalem, it is the woman Mary who anoints him as king. It's not just that God thinks women are important, because he does. It's that women are critical and crucial in the story and in the work of God. And if you're not living that and believing that, I would argue you're going counter to not just the scriptures, but to Jesus himself. 
So it's Mary that anoints Jesus as king. But what's fascinating is the men are worried about their pockets. And John, the disciple that Jesus loved, slipped in this little parenthetical that like, I read this. And I'm like, oh, this is just being petty. Like, we don't need all this, John, right? But what does John say about Judas? He goes, mm, Judas just wanted Mary not to spend this because he wanted to steal the money because you know he likes to steal, right? Like, that's what John says. And I, I always, I'm, I'm intrigued by the biblical editing process, right? Like, who reads that? And they're just like, yeah, we're going to keep that in there. Yeah, Judas thief, let's make sure that stays, right? But Judas's concern wasn't Jesus, and it's not even the poor. And it's beautiful because when Jesus says the poor are with you always, we sometimes want to think about that as like, again, Jesus is saying, yeah, the poor are there, but don't worry about them. Or like, the poor is not that important. Until you're reminded that in Scripture, it's not good to just pick out one line, right? Read the whole story. Jesus is actually quoting Scripture with that verse. And if you read the verse of that verse in Deuteronomy, Jesus is saying, everywhere you go, every land you land in, there will always be poor among you. So I need you to always serve them because no matter what situation you're in, there's always going to be someone who's worse than, but I need you to help that person who's lesser than. So Jesus isn't saying forget about the poor. He's saying, yes, remember the poor with you always. And I'm not changing. You need to serve them. But I also need you to remember that she's anointing me. That it's not about down and demeaning the poor, but it's by reminding them that my time has almost come. And this lovely sister of mine has chosen me and anointed me as king. I am her king. Serve the poor always. But remember, I am your king. And then there's this crowd, right? There's nothing that says the crowd is only Jewish. But there's this crowd of people all around the house, who they see Jesus. And it's one thing to know about Jesus, right? It's another thing to see Jesus. It's one thing to hear about Lazarus being raised from the dead. It's another thing to see him laughing and eating and reclining with Jesus. They see him and they believe. And the reaction from the Sanhedrin or the chief priests and, and Pharisees is they not only now have a bounty on Jesus, they see him as a threat. And what's fascinating is in, in the NIV, they translate this last half of verse 19 as, look how the whole world has gone after him. But there's a sense in the Hebrew of, look how the whole world has gone mad after him. Look how everyone has sold out for this Jesus. Look how everyone's willing to lose everything for this Jesus. Look how this crowd are just seeing what he's doing and leaving us and choosing to follow Jesus. So what happens in Bethany is Jesus' coronation. It's not Mary preparing him for his burial, because we're a week from Passover, which means we're a week from Good Friday. And I don't know about you, but that's like a long time to prepare a body when they still got a month or a month, a week more to live. But what she's doing is anointing him as king, which challenges us because it calls us or reminds us is how are we living our lives to show that Jesus is our anointed king? How do we live in a way that anoints Jesus as king or that acknowledges Jesus as king or that submits to Jesus our king? Pick any one of those, right? Acknowledges, admits, or surrenders, but Jesus is still king. And then after he's anointed, after the coronation in Bethany, he heads to Jerusalem. Now, the trip from Bethany to Jerusalem is about 1.72 miles, if you want to be exact, right? That's almost the same as if we all gathered here, right, and walked to the train station, right? We went down Derry Street, down the Mulberry Street, Mulberry Street Bridge, and ended up at the train station. It's about the same thing. And the reason I say that, for those of you who are familiar, if not, take that, take that long way home today. You'll, you'll, you'll be blessed, right? 
The reason I say that is because I want you to picture because there's only a limited crowd <laughs> that can be in Mary and Martha's window, right? There's only a certain amount of people that can fit and see this dinner that's going on. But as Jesus is making this march towards Jerusalem, the crowd grows and grows and grows. It's almost like we start here in Harrisburg, Brethren in Christ, and we go up on Derry Street and we start walking and the people just start joining us and joining us and joining us. So when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he's not hiding He's not scared. He's walking in as king with his people. And so this Passover crowd, they join in and they gather and the crowd builds and builds and they go to meet Jesus. And then they start singing praises to Jesus. They take out their palm branches and they're waving them and placing them at his feet. And then they start screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Which is to say, save us now, O king. Save us now, O deliverer. And if you didn't get the memo, they even continued it because they don't just say Hosanna. They said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So now they're saying, save us now, king. Save us the Messiah, the one who God has promised. And then if you still didn't get the memo, what's the last thing they say? Blessed is the king of Israel. We started off saying that Jerusalem is the political center and the spiritual center of all of Israel. And so in Jesus walking into Jerusalem, they're attacking the political center because they're saying, we do not belong to Rome. We belong to God. We do not follow Caesar or Herod. We follow Jesus. We do not follow the Sanhedrin. We think the Messiah has come and we follow the Messiah. And the challenge to us lives the same way. Do we say we do not follow America? We live for the kingdom of God. We do not follow Joe Biden or whoever the president is. We follow Jesus Christ, the king. Do we say we do not follow or live for me and mine, but we live for the kingdom of God? And so this is what they're shouting, right? It's not just Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. They are making both a political and a spiritual statement that you, Jesus, we believe is the Messiah that we're promised. You, Jesus, is greater than this king or this Herod that we see. You, Jesus, are the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the savior of the world. Come deliver us now. And how does Jesus respond? He finds the donkey and he gets on that little donkey and in one sense, he fulfills the promise that Zechariah the prophet made. But what's fascinating is that every other king or conqueror that shows up, shows up on a military war horse. Because they were coming to either kill and destroy, or because they've killed and destroyed. Our king comes on a humble donkey because he didn't come to kill, but to be killed. He didn't come to conquer by blood, but to conquer by love and giving his blood. He didn't come to show earthly power, but to lay down his heavenly power and go to Calvary's tree. And so Jesus hops on the donkey. And what I love is that the disciples, and I really do love this part, they don't even understand what's going on. And it's not till later they understand. And for me, I take that as a grace. Because most of us, when God is really actively working in our lives, we might think it's going that way, but we don't really know. And it's not until maybe years later that we think back, like, wow, God was really working on me then, wasn't he? Like, that's amazing. And I love that these disciples are front and center while all this is happening, and they still somehow miss it. 
So if we miss God moving, sometimes it's okay to like give yourself a little bit of grace. You'll get it eventually, right? But they do get it eventually. But what I love is even though the disciples miss it, the crowd does not. Even though the disciples aren't sure what all is happening here, the crowd does not. In fact, they're so moved that they go out and spread the word about Jesus. They're so moved that they've not only seen Jesus or heard about Jesus, they've seen who he is and they've acknowledged him as the king of Israel, the Messiah of the world, the deliverer of all people. They lift him up and they go out and they tell everyone about what they've seen and heard, right? It's a reminder to us that sometimes we may be too close to the sun to see, right? That maybe those who are maybe a step or two further can see more but, or see more in that moment. But what happens is the crowd, not the disciples, are the ones who go out and spread the word. They're the ones who go mad about Jesus. But this is a reminder to those of us who've been following Jesus. We all know this, right? The people who choose to follow Jesus and make that decision, they come in just roaring, right? Like, ah, let's go. Tell everyone, right? And usually we're just like, yes, tell everyone, but also breathe, you know? It's that same energy that they go mad telling everyone about Jesus, but this Palm Sunday, as we celebrate and remember Jesus coming as king, I want us to remember two things. That Jesus is still king, that Jesus is our king, that Jesus is king. But I pray that we are like the crowd in this story. Not the disciples who are blinded and get it later, right? But the crowd who's so excited that they spread the word about the Jesus they met and they went mad over Jesus. If we're going to say that Jesus is king, that means that in his kingdom, we are pledging complete allegiance to Jesus. Complete allegiance to Jesus. And that means that it's not just me saying Hosanna. It's not just me singing praise, but is my life a Hosanna praise to the Lord? Does my life reflect complete surrender to God? Is Jesus truly my king of my hopes and dreams, of my finances, of my health, of my children and grandchildren, of my worries? Is Jesus truly king of my whole life? If we're saying Jesus is king or Jesus is king now, are we truly remembering him as the Messiah, the one who was promised? The one who doesn't conquer through military might, but the one who beats swords into plowshares. The one who doesn't conquer by killing, but by giving himself up to be killed. The one who's broken so we can be made whole. The one who suffered so that we can know joy. The one who died so that we can have life. If we're saying Jesus is king, I remember him not only as this conqueror, but I remember him as the savior. I remember him for his courage. The one who says, yes, there's a bounty on my head, but I will show up. The one who says, yes, there's millions of God's people in Jerusalem, but I will show up. The one who says, yes, I'm going to even bring the guy I raised from the dead who you don't like and put a bounty on his head. I'm going to bring him too, and I will show up. I will march straight down to Jerusalem. I will set my face towards Calvary. I will show up. And if Jesus is king, the question for us becomes, how are we showing up in life's difficulties, but in the difficulties of the people around us? Are we showing up in a way to remind them that Jesus is king, 
to remind them that God is in control, to remind them that God is working and moving, to remind them that Jesus the King is on their side. Are we living that Jesus is King? But then, are we also being the crowd? I want to invite you to do something. It's going to be a little trust exercise, but it's okay. You trust me, so you'll just be good. I want you to all close your eyes. I want to walk us through a series of questions that I think is going to help us at least think about what does it mean to be the crowd. The first one is I want you to think back to that point when you truly met Jesus. Not the first time you heard about Jesus, but the time you truly met Jesus as king. What did that look like to you? What did that feel like? What is that story? What does it mean to sit in that moment right now? And now as you sit in that moment, I want to ask you this. How are others meeting Jesus the King through you? That moment that you're holding on to, how are other people experiencing that or being invited into that through you? How are others meeting Jesus through you? On the triumphal entry, the people gathered to wave their palm branches and to praise the Holy One, the Messiah, the Promised One, the King of Israel. I want to ask you, as you sit there with your eyes closed still, how does your life look like praise to God? Where is your praise for Jesus, your King? Where does that show up? And is it showing up in every aspect of your life? How are you living to show Jesus is king? Where is your praise? And this last one, Keith Green has this line where he says, um, remind me of my first love. And I love when new people come into the kingdom, that energy they have. But according to this passage, the crowd based on meeting Jesus, seeing Jesus work, seeing Jesus meet with others through them, Seeing praise for Jesus, they went mad for Jesus. So the question becomes, how can you go mad for Jesus? If there's Jesus you met, the Jesus who wants to meet others through you, and it's Jesus who's worthy of praise, how can you give up anything and everything to live in a way that's pleasing to him? I just invite you to take a minute to hold on to these things. When did you first truly meet Jesus? How are other people meeting Jesus through you? How is your life a life of praise to Jesus? And are you now ready to live mad, to give it all up, to sacrifice it all if need be, to fully, fully live and work for Jesus. Amen. This week, we're ushering in Holy Week. And here at HPIC, I love that there's so many different ways we're going to celebrate this. But as we celebrate Holy Week, may we be reminded that in Matthew 25, Jesus talks about the least of these, right? He says, the people who love the hungry, the broken, the tired, the weak, the naked, the vulnerable, the immigrant, the stranger, the, the imprisoned, those are people who loved me. 
And a lot of us think that this is some kind of like theological or metaphysical or even like, like, like it's like a, it's like an ideological thing until you get later in Matthew and you see Jesus on the cross and you realize that on Calvary's tree, he's broken, he's naked, he's thirsty, He's treated not as a citizen of Israel, a citizen of Rome. He's actually pushed out of the city. And the fact that he was crucified means they denied his citizenship of Israel and Rome. So, and he's imprisoned, right? So the least of these that Jesus talks about is who he becomes on the cross. And so when we hold on to that, we realize that, yes, Jesus enters into Jerusalem as king. But he's forced out of the city as a criminal. He's beaten He's betrayed, he's hunted, he's arrested, he's suffered, he's crucified. And so that's what we also want to remember this week. So on Thursday night, we had that lovely announcement, and we invited you to come celebrate Maundy Thursday with us. As we focus not only on the Last Supper, but the fact that the King of all kings, the Lord of the universe, comes to serve. And we do it not just washing each other's feet, but remembering and telling the story of the King of all kings, coming to serve and to be a servant, to lay down his life for us. And then on Good Friday, we have stations, and they're contemplative and they're slow. You go on them one at a time. I want to invite you. I think last year we had about 30 people. Let's see if we get a 40 this year, right? But I really want you to think about making that into your schedule because I think Gethsemane gets skipped over so much. And as a kid, I remember when it hit me that Good Friday is only good for us. Because Jesus, the scripture says, was, was not only in anguish and, and not only trying to figure out what does it mean to do my father's will, but the scripture just says that his sweat was like blood to the ground and God had to send angels to strengthen him. But on that march towards Calvary, it's also our Jesus saying, not my will, but yours be done. And so I want to invite you to those Good Friday stations because it's a chance to reflect and to remember again why this was a good Friday for us. And of course, we're going to celebrate next week, Easter and Resurrection Sunday. But as we go through this week, may we be reminded that Jesus, our King, comes not for our hopes and dreams, for the hopes and dreams that God has for the world. That Jesus, our King, comes not even to do his will, but to do the Father's will. That Jesus, our King, comes not just for you and for me, but for the world. And may we hold on to that that same Jesus who comes for God's hopes and dreams, who comes for God's will, who comes to save the world, is the Jesus who comes to set you free. Amen? In the next moments, we'll be sharing in communion together, celebrating the new life that we have in Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to partake of the bread and the cup. Hopefully, as you came in, you're able to grab the elements. Um, if you weren't able to do that, I'd like to invite you at this time uh, to grab the elements. If you're at home, hopefully you've gotten creative and you have your elements with you. Um, this Sunday, or as going forward for communion, we have added additional responsive readings. And this responsive reading will be from John chapter 6. Again, for us, the table of the Lord is for all who believe and all who have received Christ as Lord. Let us join together in a responsive reading for communion, taking for John chapter 6. We will read the regular print and you will read the congregation part. It will be up front. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. 
this bread. Jesus said, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Jesus said, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Amen. One way we're reminded of Jesus, the bread of life, is to share in the Lord's Supper. We now invite you to come to this table, not because we must, but because we may. We come to testify, not that we are perfect, but that we sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. We come, not because we are strong, but because we are weak. Not because we have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in our frailty we stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. We come not only to remember his death, but also his resurrection and promise to return. Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before us, let us lift up our minds and hearts above all our selfish fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to us the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Jesus, our Lord, we thank you so much that on the night that you were betrayed, you took the bread and you broke it and you blessed it. But now we're reminded of that, not only symbolically, not only theologically, but even just practically, because this morning we remember that it wasn't just the blessing and the breaking of the bread, but that you are our blessing and that you allowed yourself to be broken. You allowed your suffering so that we can know joy, your brokenness so that we can be whole. And Lord, we thank you that through your sacrifice, we as lost children can come home again. So we thank you for this bread and a reminder that you freely and lovingly chose us. In your holy and precious name, amen. Please join me now in the continued responsive reading. My sisters and brothers, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? This bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. Take and eat this bread, remembering he was born to be our Savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your hearts and be thankful. The same way after supper, Jesus took the cup, which in the Jewish Passover feast is called the cup of blessing. And he told his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Your word reminds us, Lord, that every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, that we're proclaiming your death until you come again, until you return. And so we thank you um, again today for your death, for your outstretched arms on the cross, for your blood that was spilled. We thank you that you have made us whole, that you have given us salvation, that you've given us freedom from our sins and from our sinfulness. May our response to you, God, today as we take this cup, may it be once again that of being filled up with thankfulness, 
And as we are thankful, God, may we commit ourselves yet again to lives of holiness, to justice, to service, and to love. Help us as we take your cup in Jesus' name. Amen. some say the communion response together. My brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Take this cup, remembering that he said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. this time I'd like to invite the worship team back up as we prepare for our final song. Also, I'd like to invite any of the pastors in the room to please join us up front. Um, if you'd like prayer for maybe it's something you want to respond to in the sermon or maybe there's something you have going on or someone who's on your mind that you want us to join in prayer for, we'd love to pray. Um, but for all of us as we stand now and sing this song, may we be reminded not only that Jesus is King, but of the call that he's placed on our lives to live as if he's king of all of our lives as well. So please stand and let's continue in worship.
This morning we have joined with the ancients, but also sisters and brothers from the world over to sing Hosanna. May our King be lifted up. Hosanna, O King Jesus, come and save us. Hosanna, O King Jesus, come and deliver us. Hosanna, O King Jesus, come and redeem us. Hosanna, thank you, Jesus, for making us, your people, your family, the family of God. Our Father God, we thank you so much that this morning, through the power of the Holy Spirit living and transforming us and calling us back to you, that we can cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Lord Jesus, our Christ, we thank you that you are indeed the Messiah that was promised, that you are indeed the deliverer that, that, that lifts us from the bondage of the sin that so easily ensnares us and pulls us away from God. Your love pulls us back in. And we thank you that with your outstretched arms, with your body broken and your blood poured, that you have died so that we may have life. So Lord, our King, we thank you for your humble sacrifice, for your humble life, that you, the Lord of the universe, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, left heaven to come to earth. And on this earth lived to show us how to live, died so that we can know life. But Lord, we thank you that as we go into this holy week, we're reminded that the work was finished. So we praise our God and Father that the work is finished. We praise our God and Father that your brokenness makes us whole. And Lord, as we depart, we're reminded that Jesus is King. He's the King and let us have allegiance to our King Jesus. But Lord, also help us to be like the crowd who are able to say, this is where God has met me. Let me tell you. This is who God has transformed me into. Let me tell you. Let us be reminded that God works in and through us, not only for us, but for the world. So, Father, help us to live in a way that we bring praise to you. Help us to live in a way that we tell your story in the living of our lives. Help us to live in a way that we don't just say Jesus is king, but our lives, our love, all that we are, screams and proclaims, Hosanna, Jesus is king. In your holy and precious name, Lord, we pray. Amen. God bless you all.